0: Uh, Our sermon text this morning comes from Romans chapter 7, and it is verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law, for I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. Uh, Children, if you'd like, you can come down and sit in front. If I asked you if you love your mom and dad, I'm sure you would all say yes, am I right? Yes, of course I am. When you love someone, the main way you show it is not just by saying, I love you. It's good to say that, it's right to say that. Your parents like to hear you say it. But the most important way you show someone that you love them is by doing the things that make them happy. And for little children like you, the way you show your parents you love them is by doing what they tell you. Now we have to talk about something that's hard to talk about. Not because it's hard to explain, it's just nobody likes talking about it. Every one of you children, and every one of the grown-ups when you were children, many times you did not do what your parents told you to do. Maybe you broke something, and when dad and mom asked you if you did it, you said no. Even though you knew it was you who did it. Many times you've done something that you knew was wrong and you knew you'd be in trouble if you got caught. But you went ahead for some reason and you did it anyway. Now let me ask you a question. Has anyone ever taught you that when you break a glass you're supposed to take all the broken pieces and hide them behind the couch so mom won't find them? No, of course not. Has anyone ever taught you how to lie? No, of course not. Yet everyone knows how to do it. So this is the part no one likes to talk about. Why do you do those things? You say you love your dad and mom, you say that you love God, and I'm happy to say I believe you. So why is it that even though you love them, and you know that lying to them or disobeying them is not really a way to show love, you still do these things? Well, the Bible is the only book that tells us the answer to that question. In fact, the Bible is the only book that even knows this question is a problem in the world. And that's because the Bible is the word of God. God created us, and since he created us, he knows everything there is to know about us. And he knows why we act the way we do and how we came to be this way. When God made our first parents, who were they? Adam and Eve. People weren't like this. They never did anything wrong. They didn't lie to each other. They didn't do anything wrong against God or against other people. They didn't do anything that the Bible calls sin. Sin is doing what we're not supposed to do or not doing what we are supposed to do. Adam and Eve were created by God as perfectly good and obedient God placed them in a beautiful garden and told them they could have anything they want except for the fruit of one tree. Uh, We all know what happened. They ate the fruit of that tree, and sin entered God's good creation. But something very, very big happened to Adam and Eve when they sinned. Their very nature changed. Before, they loved God, and they always wanted to be with him. When they sinned, they ran away from God and hid in the bushes hoping He wouldn't find them ever and they wouldn't have to talk to Him anymore. And then when He found them, they started blaming Him and each other for their sin. They were no longer good and holy people. They were now sinners. After Adam and Eve sinned, being sinful became part of human nature. When cows have babies, they don't have baby pigs, do they? No, they have little baby cows. When Adam and Eve became sinners and they had babies, they had little baby sinners. And that's the reason why we do the things we shouldn't do. That's why we can love our parents and then lie to them when we get caught doing something we were told not to do. It's because we're sinners. You know, the Bible asks Can a leopard change its spots? Do you know what a leopard is? A leopard is a big cat like a tiger. Except instead of having stripes, it has spots. Can a leopard change its spots? Can a tiger change its stripes? Can a robin swim? Can a shark live in a tree? Can a little sinner boy or girl change himself or herself? Now the answer is no. Only God can change us. So I want you to pay close attention to the rest of the sermon this morning, because we're going to learn more about this. God has shown great love to you by giving you, Christian parents, by making you to be born in a family that loves God and worships Him and comes to His house to hear His Word. And His Word tells you the way to be rescued from your own sinfulness, and that is through Jesus. We're going to pray, and then you can return to your seats, okay? O Heavenly Father, thy word is perfect, restoring the soul, making wise the simple, and enlightening the eyes of the blind. The power of God unto salvation for everyone that believes. We, however, are by nature blind and incapable of doing anything good. And thou wilt relieve only those who have a broken and contrite heart and who revere thy word. We entreat thee that thou wouldst illumine our darkened minds with thy Holy Spirit and give us a humble heart, free from all haughtiness and carnal wisdom, in order that we, hearing thy word, may rightly understand it and regulate our lives accordingly. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay, you can return to your seats. Our sermon text, Romans 7, 7, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, You shall not covet. Now for five Lord's Days, today included, we're going to be looking at five doctrines known collectively as The Doctrines of Grace. There are actually five parts of the Reformed Doctrine of Salvation, and they were first really linked up in this neat little package because of a crisis in the Reformed Church in Holland in the early years of the 1600s. A professor of theology at Leiden University by the name of Jakob Harmonson, more commonly known as James Arminius, began teaching doctrines which were clearly in violation of his oath of subscription, which was part of his ordination he was bound by this oath to teach the doctrines of Scripture as expressed in the Belgic Confession and the Heidelberg Catechism. Not only was he teaching these false doctrines to his students, but on the sly he was secretly handing out literature that he had written against the Reformed faith. When the other university professors caught on to what he was doing, a brouhaha ensued, a rather heated debate uh, ensued between him and a professor by the name of Francis Gomarus, Because this was a state university, the civil magistrate got involved and the state's general of Holland called for a synod to address the issue. Well, Arminius died in 1609 before he could face heresy charges, but several of his most ardent defenders and supporters wrote up a document called the Remonstrance. Wherein they set forth their disagreements with the Reformed doctrine of salvation. There were five points wherein they strayed from the teaching of Scripture as it is expressed in the Reformed confessions. So from November of 1619 through May of 16, I'm sorry, November of 1618 through May of 1619, about six months, the Synod met in the Dutch city of Dort. Now, besides the Dutch, there were representatives and voting members from eight foreign Reformed churches. The Germans were there, too. The final decision of the Synod, which is officially known as the Canons of the Synod of Dort, has been nicknamed, popularly nicknamed, TULIP, which is an acronym for the five points of Reformed doctrine that the Synod defended against the Remonstrants. The acronym TULIP stands for Total Depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. It's a handy little mnemonic, plus the tulip is kind of the national symbol of Holland, where the synod was held. At any rate, the five points are the very epitome of the Reformed doctrine of salvation, and as such, they faithfully represent what the scriptures teach. Okay, with the history in place, we'll begin. Our topic today is the tea, total depravity. So let's read our text again. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law, for I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. The outline is on the back of the bulletin, as well as several scripture proofs and some interesting quotes from significant authors in church history. Total depravity, as taught in our text, means that, number one, we blame everyone but ourselves. Number two, we're blind and we don't know it. And number three, we can only learn of our condition and its remedy from God's word. So our first point, mankind is so corrupt that he's more willing to blame the law of God than himself. This is gathered from the words of our text, is the law sin? This inclination to blame God and his law is seen, evident, in the very first sin. When God calls Adam and Eve to account, they both start shifting blame. But notice that they're both blaming God. I mean, they they just look like they're shifting blame, but it's very uh, subtle and devious, and therefore doubly wicked. Adam says, the woman, ah, he's blaming her, no, which you gave me. Which is a circuitous way of saying, it's your fault, God, because you gave me this woman. And then Eve says, the serpent deceived me, and I was deceived, which is a long way of saying, God, if you hadn't created this serpent and then put him here in the garden with us, he wouldn't have been here to trick me. As I said, the blame shifting is subtle and devious. The second man fell into sin, he went into direct warfare against God. As our catechism says, prone by nature to hate God and my neighbor. Adam blamed God and his wife, his neighbor. The sin of Adam's, because he was the root and representative of all humanity, brought sin into the human race. Sin corrupted man's nature, and that's why we say that we now have a sinful nature. Adam was created by God as the covenant head of humanity, and when he sinned, we all sinned in him. We were in Adam biologically, and we were in Adam covenantally, so there's no denying our guilt You know, when a president declares war on an enemy, we don't act surprised when people from that enemy nation hate us and want to kill us, even if we haven't enlisted in the armed forces. When Adam sinned as our representative, he declared war on God. And we are all, therefore, God's enemies. This is the state into which all humanity is born, without exception. That God saves anyone is an expression of unfathomable goodness and love. The doctrine of total depravity teaches the utter inability of man to save himself or indeed to have any part in saving himself because of the effects of sin in the soul. Man is dead in sin and trespasses, as Ephesians 2.1 says. As a corpse, he can do nothing to bring himself back to life. Every part of man's nature was corrupted by sin. And he longs only to rebel against God. Look at the passages on the back of the bulletin. Man's sinfulness is intensive as well as extensive. The effect of the fall upon man is that sin has corrupted every part of his being. Body, mind, emotions, will, heart, all of it. The unregenerate person is declared to be dead in sin, apart from a regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, the natural man is blind and deaf to the message of the gospel. There is a total inability to come to faith in Christ apart from a divine work of grace. Every act of an unbeliever is done outside of faith in Christ. And Scripture says that whatever is not of faith is sin. 1 Corinthians fourteen twenty three. In our flesh, there dwells no good thing. Romans seven eighteen. All of our righteousness is as filthy rags. Isaiah sixty four six. Even acts of apparent self sacrifice do not avail with God. Proverbs twenty one twenty seven. The sacrifices of the wicked are an abomination. Now, perhaps you object. What about all the good in the world? What about the fact that unsaved husbands and wives usually love each other and their children? Well, before addressing this objection from Scripture, let me point out that the idea being assumed stands on pretty shaky ground already. I mean, 50% of all first marriages end in divorce, and, and even more subsequent ones do. The backlog of alimony and child support could eradicate our national debt. For the last 47 years, 60 million unborn babies have been mercilessly slaughtered, offered as child sacrifices to the God of sexual liberty and convenience. Spousal and child abuse, are physical and emotional, are rampant in this country. So it might be wise to backpedal a bit on that bold assertion that unbelievers love their spouses and children, and that this disproves the biblical doctrine of total depravity. Enough of us have been on both the giving and receiving end of cruelty to make us blush at even raising that objection. We mustn't get carried away ascribing good to the unregenerate. Good is only defined as God defines it. And that means that all the so-called good in the world that the unregenerate do is hopelessly and irredeemably polluted by sin. Even the good works of believers are... In the words of question 62 of our catechism, imperfect and defiled with sin. Scripture says that all of our righteousness is as filthy rags. You may know that the Hebrew word rendered filthy rags in English refers to polluted menstrual rags. Not a very congratulatory evaluation of the so called good that sinners do. And furthermore, all that don't worship God are idolaters, and the very essence of idolatry is self-worship. That picture, that image, that statue, that's just a tool for the worshiper to get what he wants. I mean, if I, I think we're on good, solid grounds, biblically, to say that most of the good that we see in the world is simply the result of self-interest. I mean, if I kill my customers, who's going to buy my products, murder cramps my style. And besides, I think it's warranted by Scripture in the light of the Scripture's language of the sinner's deadness and blindness and alienation of mind to say that our depravity is so bad that we misread the world and see it as a much better place than it really is. We're in the burning room sipping our coffee going, this is fine, Yeah, yeah, but what about all the the great inventions in the world? Haven't they all been used as tools of sin from day one? We all know that's true. Every weapon of self-defense has been used as a weapon of aggression virtually from the day it was invented. Every piece of technology, whether it's the printing press, the movie camera, the TV, the computer, the cell phone, they've all been used to record and spread moral filth virtually from the day they were invented. It's a pretty severe case of spiritual blindness that can watch the evening news and then imagine that all the evil in the world springs from, the hearts of, springs from love in the hearts of people who are essentially and basically good. You know, God's punishment for sin is very often more sin. Jesus said, this is the condemnation of God, that light has come into the world, but men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. Now, this is no doubt a very unpopular doctrine because our world unquestioningly accepts the idea that all men are basically good. There's good in everybody. True Christians must reject and abhor such a belief. Scripture declares that all men are sinners, all men seek only evil continually, all men are at enmity with God, and all men stand before God with nothing but the menstrual rags of their own righteousness. And that's the best that they have. Secondly, men by nature are so blind that although they are completely drowned in sin and death of themselves, they cannot know it. This comes from the words of our text I would not have known sin. This passage expresses something very profound. What it tells us is that sin is so natural to us that we can't even recognize it without divine intervention. I would not have known sin except through the law. The way total depravity is frequently defined is problematic. And I think it's because men are deceived by the apparent good in the world, and so they make the mistake of defining depravity by men's acts rather than their nature. What does depravity mean? We should probably first clarify what it doesn't mean. It does not mean that every man is as publicly bad as he could possibly be. This misunderstanding is perhaps why some people reject the doctrine. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Problem of Pain, stated that he disbelieved the doctrine because, quote, "...if our depravity were total, we wouldn't know ourselves to be depraved, and partly because experience shows us much goodness in human nature." It's hard to read that in, without reading it in a sarcastic tone because both parts of his foolhardy rejection of the doctrine are due to the misrepresentation of it that we're refuting. Straight out of our text, we can say, by nature, we don't know that we're depraved. Our passage says, I would not have known sin except through the law. Scripture reveals our depravity. It wasn't secular philosophers who devised this doctrine Based on their observations of humanity, it's the Word of God that revealed it. If God had not revealed our depravity, we wouldn't know it, and that in itself is an indication of its totality. If Scripture had not revealed to us our depravity, we wouldn't know it, and it's not because it isn't observable but it's because we love darkness rather than light. The very mind and conscience of man is corrupted. It doesn't possess the light that enables it to rightly judge itself and the things that belong to true spiritual life. What it does possess is a perverse disposition from which it often calls good evil and evil good. By total, we don't mean that every man is the worst that he could possibly be. That's obviously not true. What we do mean is this, every single faculty and part of the totality of man's being has been ruined by sin. There is no part of the total human nature that is unaffected by the fall. In essence, total depravity means that the corruption has spread, extended to all aspects of human nature. Hence, there is nothing any person can do to merit saving favor with God. Sometimes people define total depravity in words such as these. Total depravity does not mean that we're all as bad as we can be, but it does mean that we're all as bad off as we can be. Now there's an appearance of truth, and even correctness to that statement, but... I'm of the opinion that it's something of a misleading presentation of the doctrine. It appears to me that the two sides of that statement don't have any real actual correspondence to each other. It's a bit like saying roses are red because violets are blue. Neither side actually explains the other side. But not only that, it leads us to the erroneous position that depravity is measured by the number of sins you commit and or the egregiousness of those sins. I hope you can follow my argument i 'm going tr- i 'm trying to do my best to make my meaning and my concern clear. Total depravity is the sinful condition of my nature; it is intensive as well as extensive. every aspect of my being is affected my mind my will my heart have been Infected, polluted, defiled, and depraved, and therefore depravity is not measured by which sins I do or do not commit. Your depravity and mine is not any less because we have not committed murder, armed robbery, arson, or rape. Your depravity and mine would not be any greater had we committed the aforementioned sins. Our depravity is total. Were it not for the providence of God, which frankly keeps us all from living down to our full potential, there's nothing in us to keep us from being the next Jezebel or Ahab. There, but for the grace of God, go I. Our catechism rings from us a confession of this truth in the words to the answer uh, in the answer to question five: I am prone by nature to hate God and my neighbor. We are so born in sin that it is natural to us and we have never experienced any other condition. A person who is born blind will, even while acknowledging that his condition is not normal, he'll still act as if it is. And to him, it is normal. If he had never met a sighted person, he would just assume that his condition, blindness, was the norm. And it's the same way with total depravity. We've never known anything else. So even if we can be prevailed upon by scripture and sound reason to admit that this is an abnormal state of affairs, it's still normal to us and we accept it as it is and usually we revel in it. Defining depravity by our acts rather than by our nature is just soft-soaping the issue. It's a subtle way to admit that we have sinned without admitting that we're sinners. We affirm this doctrine on the basis of the clear teaching of Scripture. Let the opponents of the Reformed faith follow their theology to its logical conclusion, and they will be forced not only to deny total depravity, but even original sin. All who would deny this central tenet of the Christian faith, we declare to be in darkness, intellectual and spiritual. Our third point, the only way to rightly know sin and the cause of our misery is is by the law of God. This comes from the words of our text, for unless the law had said. This is actually the whole point of the children's sermon. Let's apply the doctrine of total depravity to ourselves. I'm a staunch believer that doctrine is the instrument of sanctification. Jesus prayed for his disciples, sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. Knowledge of the truth as it is in Christ Jesus shapes our lives because we always live according to what we believe. No man lives in open contradiction with his actual beliefs. He may live at odds with his professed beliefs, but not his actual ones. Our catechism beautifully expresses the profit of learning the doctrine of our depravity. The answer to question 115 reads, First, that all our lifetime we may learn more and more to know our sinful nature. And thus become the more earnest in seeking the remission of sin and righteousness in Christ. You notice that the Catechism is working with the assumption that it is natural for us to deny our sinful nature. As question 56 puts it, my corrupt nature against which I have to struggle all my life long. It is the easiest thing in the world to forget our sinfulness, and this is because we either don't believe it, we don't want to believe it, or we actually love it. And Jesus himself says that all three are true. We refuse to come to the light because we love the darkness rather than the light. Light exposes the evil that we love, hence we'll kill the light if we have to. For centuries, humanity has generally acknowledged that Jesus was a good man and that he taught much about love and kindness. Now, obviously, he was much more than just a good man, and he obviously taught about much more than just Love and kindness. But even assuming those weak premises, when Jesus came to earth, love incarnate came to earth. Humans like you and me stripped Him naked, scourged His back with whips, punched Him in the face, pulled out handfuls of His beard and hair, beat Him with rods, nailed Him to a cross, hung Him up in the heat of the day for every passerby to laugh at And mock, don't tell me about how mankind is basically good. And it wasn't the town drunks, hookers, and criminals who did this either. No, it was the good, upstanding, law-abiding citizens who like to talk about morality, law, and order, and traditional values. A second benefit of knowing our depravity is that it drives us away from reliance on ourselves and our good works. And instead it drives us to Christ and his righteousness. This is what question 115 of our catechism tells us. Is that knowing our, our personal wickedness, our proneness to hate God and our neighbor, the fact that salvation notwithstanding, I'm still inclined to all evil, makes me more earnest in seeking remission of sin and righteousness in Christ. I've never met anyone who balked at the reform doctrine of total depravity, who didn't do so because he was afraid it would belittle the value of his good works. The only reason a man refuses to accept what Scripture teaches about man's sinfulness is because he loves darkness rather than light. If he be forced to deal with God and His law, he's going to do it his own way. And if you tell him he can't do it his own way, that every inclination of his heart is evil, and that only the imputed righteousness of Christ can save him, he will show his true colors. You might be a violent reaction. Look, I'm a good person. You're not going to tell me that I can't do anything acceptable to God. There's no way that I'm as wicked as you say. You can't judge me. Or it may be more subtle and refined. Yeah, I agree with what you're saying, but in other words, I believe it about everyone but myself. In the words of the self-righteous Pharisee, God, I thank you that I am not, as other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. Either way, this man hates God's truth and refuses to bow the knee to the righteousness of Jesus as the only way of salvation. And we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, how that, as James one twenty three says, we look in the mirror of the Word, but we don't see our true reflection. We come to the mirror of God's law, and because we're already convinced that we belong on the cover of a fashion magazine, we can overlook the fact that we're mangy, flea-bitten, moral sewer rats who scurry around in the filth and evil of a filthy and evil world that we've created for ourselves. That's our depravity. That's our blindness. That's our deadness. From a practical standpoint, convincing men of their sinfulness is an impossible task. It's something only the Holy Spirit can do. It's fairly easy to get people to admit that they've done bad things, but even then, it's usually couched in exculpatory language. Well, we've all done things that we regret, as if the fact that everybody has sinned somehow makes sin less hateful to God. The fact is, people just don't really believe it about themselves. Uh, Even getting people to admit that they're sinners is relatively easy. Getting them to admit that they're sinful that's a whole other ball game, and it's something only the Holy Spirit can do. Look, when someone admits to being a sinner, agree with him, and you'll see how sincere the admission really was. The English preacher C.H. Spurgeon once said that if someone speaks ill of you, don't be angry with him because you're really a lot worse than he thinks you are. If, as we have established, all men are hopelessly sold into the bondage of sin, how can anyone be saved? Now, this, Lord willing, is what we design to address in the next sermon. Let's pray. Almighty and most merciful God, our Heavenly Father, we cast ourselves down before Thee under a deep sense of our own unworthiness and guilt. We have grievously sinned against Thee in thought, in word, and in deed. We have come short of Thy glory. We have broken Thy commandments and turned aside every one of us from the way of life. And in us there is no soundness nor health. Yet now, O most merciful Father, hear us when we call upon Thee with penitent hearts. And for the sake of Thy Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy upon us. Pardon our sins and grant us Thy peace. Take away our guilt. Purify us by the inspiration of Thy Holy Spirit from all inward uncleanness. And make us able and willing to serve thee in newness of life to the glory of thy holy name. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, in whose name we are bold to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors.